From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Lung cancer remains the leading cause of cancer deaths in the United States, but there are ways to reduce the risk of death and it's treatable when caught early. I'm talking with Dr. Jason Wallen. He's the Chief of Thoracic Surgery at Upstate University Hospital and Medical Director of the Lung Cancer and Thoracic Oncology Program at the Upstate Cancer Center. Welcome back to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Wallen. Thanks, Amber. Now let's first talk about uh, how most cases of lung cancer are discovered. What, what are the early warning signs and is that what brings people into your office? Well, sadly, there are not very many early warning signs. Uh, in fact, another way to say it would be to put to say that uh, if you have signs, the lung cancer is probably not early anymore. Um, and uh, so most patients who present are presenting uh, sort of by accident where they're achieve, they're getting x-rays or CAT scans for some other reason and we're discovering uh, a possible lung cancer. Uh, and sadly, a number of people do present with signs and symptoms, but like I said, most of those patients already have advanced disease, which is not the way we want to be catching them. So they're lucky if they do find it by accident early. That's correct. Now, as more people, and, and we'll talk about this more about lung cancer screening, and as more people undergo lung cancer screening, are you then able to find more lung cancers early? So that's something that's been new in the last few years where we have shown that patients who do get lung cancer screening on a regular basis or who follow the guidelines do uh, find that we get we detect their lung cancers earlier at much more treatable stages. And there are dramatic improvements in survival related to that. Well, we're gonna go into a lot greater detail on how lung cancer screening is done, but do I understand correctly that more people are likely to qualify for lung cancer screening in the near future? Yes, there's been an update to the guidelines. So uh, we, they, we are now recommending lung cancer screening for younger patients and for patients who don't have as significant of a, of a smoking history as, as the previous guidelines. I see. Now, getting back to the idea of someone um, discovering a lung cancer incidentally, if they come in for an x-ray for something unrelated, is that x-ray or other imaging scans like it, are, are those definitive? Do they say for sure that it's a lung cancer or could it be something else? The only way to definitively diagnose a lung cancer or any cancer for that matter is to actually get a piece of it. Um, and so, no, to answer your question, no x-rays will definitively tell you that somebody has a cancer or not. Certainly they can raise the concern, uh, particularly chest x-rays can be very challenging to interpret. CT scans are a little bit easier and they can certainly become more concerning but you still need a biopsy in the end. So tell me how a biopsy is accomplished. It depends a little bit on the location of the tumor. Uh, generally speaking, biops uh, biopsies can either be performed what we call percutaneously, which is where a needle is introduced through the skin into the area where the tumor is, and that will require some form of what we call image guidance, where uh, the most common modality is a CT scan. Um, and the, the radiologist will use a CT scanner to introduce a needle uh, into the lesion. Um, another way, which is less common, uh, is to use ultrasound. Um, that's only a, a small fraction of tumors that can be diagnosed uh, in that way. 
And for tumors that are closer to the center areas of the lungs can be diagnosed with a procedure known as bronchoscopy, sometimes with an adjunctive technology, uh, such as endobronchial ultrasound or navigational bronchoscopy to make de uh, detecting those lesions easier. So then uh, the sample goes to a lab and a pathologist tells you whether it's cancer or not? That's correct. So once you have that diagnosis, what do you do to determine what stage or how advanced it is? So that's a perfect segue. Uh, the first thing you need to find out with any suspicious lung nodules, whether it's a cancer or not, once somebody has a known cancer, the next thing you have to do to determine what their treatment is going to be is to figure out what the stage is. And most cancers get a stage of uh, one through four. One is the earliest stage. It's usually a small tumor wherever it began. Fours are, are the most advanced cancers where they spread to other parts of the body. And then there are twos and threes, which usually are larger tumors or they have some lymph nodes that are involved or maybe a combination of, it, of that. And staging with for lung cancer usually involves a PET scan as the next step, which is a nuclear study, which combines both a nuclear imaging study and a CT scan to help us determine areas where a cancer may have spread to. If it's spread, again, a PET scan is not a cancer scan. So just like we talked about with CT scans and chest x-rays, they don't definitively diagnose cancer and they don't definitively tell you where a cancer may have spread to, but they do give you an idea. Uh, we also sometimes use endobronchial ultrasound, which is a little bit more invasive, but it's the bronchoscopy where you put a scope down through the mouth into the windpipe and we can directly assess lymph nodes uh, with that technology. Uh, and there are a few other techniques which are less commonly used as well. Can you describe the two main types of lung cancer? Usually we split, we split lung cancer into small cell and non-small cell. Uh, I always tell patients that uh, most of the time when you hear people talking about lung cancer, in quotes, they're talking about the most common variety, which is non-small cell lung carcinoma, which for, accounts for a little over 70% of the new diagnoses of lung cancer. Uh, and then uh, the second uh, group is the small cell lung cancers, which are less common. Uh, they also tend to be more aggressive and they're handled very differently than the more common non-small cell lung carcinomas. So, which one uh, comes from smoking more, most typically? They're both related to smoking. Is it typical for both lungs to be involved or just one? Most cancers start in one place. Uh, and so they start in one lung. And if a lung cancer is in two lungs, you're either talking about two separate cancers, which is not terribly uncommon for lung cancer, or the cancer has spread to the other lung, in which case now you're talking about an increase in stage. Now, in terms of the patients that you see, how what is the age range typically? Cancer doesn't generally discriminate based on age. And so uh, anybody can get any cancer at any time. Uh, there are certain things that make it more likely, and lung cancer uh, is more likely to occur in people who are older ages. But uh, it's not uncommon at all to see lung cancers in patients as young as in their early 50s. And, and certainly they can get them into their 90s uh, and perhaps even beyond as well. Um, uh, there are, pati are patients who are younger than their 50s, but those are much more rare. And is it evenly divided between men and women? No, most lung cancer patients are men. Uh, and we believe that's related to the higher incidence of smoking in men historically. Uh, although those ratios are uh, are changing as as more men quit smoking and more women start. 
You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air with your host, Amber Smith. I'm talking with Dr. Jason Wallen, the Chief of Thoracic Surgery and Medical Director of the Lung Cancer and Thoracic Oncology Program at Upstate. Now, surgery is one of the treatment options, so can you describe how that is done? Sure. Uh, surgery is usually employed for patients with earlier stage lung cancers, and uh, we favor a minimally invasive approach at Upstate, and most uh, institutions do now. Uh, where we make a series of small incisions, usually about an inch or smaller across, uh, that we go between the ribs with very small instruments and a camera. Uh, in most cases, we use the Da Vinci surgical robot uh, to increase the level of precision and dexterity for the surgeon during the operation. Uh, and that uh, helps us to complete the vast majority of surgeries with a minimally invasive approach. Um, most of the time, we are going to remove an area of the lung where the tumor is, um, and that can be uh, either the lobe of the lung uh, or part of a lobe. And in some rare cases, we move and remove an entire lung. So what factors help you decide whether you're going to just remove the tumor or a section of a lobe or, or the whole lung? So the current state of our knowledge in 2021 uh, tells us that the, the best operation for an early stage lung cancer is to remove the entire lobe of the lung that the cancer is in. And we all have five lobes uh, total. We've got three on the right and two on the left. Uh, so it's not a huge uh, portion of somebody's lung when they lose a lobe. I know a lot of patients when we talk to them in the clinic, they get nervous when we say that. But that's the standard operation, which we think offers the best long-term survival and the least chance that the cancer will grow back where we where we made our incisions. Um, so uh, if we're taking out a whole lung, which is, like I said, is much less common, that's usually because of the location of the cancer. It's usually somewhere right in the root or the central area of the lung, and uh, there's no way to remove it without taking the whole lung out. Happily, we very seldom have to do that. And then patients who we move less than a lobe, uh, it usually is because they have compromised breathing function, and we we still think that surgery is the best treatment for them. But we want to limit the amount of lung we remove because we're worried about the impact that surgery will have on their breathing in the long term, and we don't want anybody to have terrible difficulty with their breathing because of a surgery that we performed. And then finally, there are some patients who make a conscious decision that they want to prioritize their breathing, even though it may be quite good, uh, over the possibilities of uh, dealing with cancer in the future, uh, simply because they want to focus on quality of life. And that can be facilitated by patients who have small tumors in the edge of the lung, uh, where it becomes technically easier to remove part of a lobe and saving the vast majority of the lung for breathing purposes on down the road. You mentioned that we have three lobes in the right lung and two in the left lung. Does that make a difference in their size? So the right lung is a little bit bigger than the left, uh, and that's not so much because of the lobes uh, as it is because uh, there's a little bit more of the heart on the left-hand side than on the right, and so that takes up some of the room that the lung can be in. Uh, the, the the third or missing lobe on the left-hand side, uh, there is an area of the lung which uh, takes up about the same amount of room and we say is analogous to the uh, what's called the middle lobe on the right-hand side. Uh, and so, you know, the bits and pieces are all there, but they're not divided the same way. Oh, interesting. Now, I know the thoracic oncology program is a multidisciplinary team, so patients, you know, have a variety of experts who review their case. At what point might radiation therapy come into play? 
So generally speaking, radiation therapy uh, comes in a couple of forms. Uh, there's what we call stereotactic radiosurgery, and then there's more conventional radiotherapy. And there are other fancier subdivisions of radiation as well. But uh, many people are probably familiar with more conventional forms of radiotherapy where patients are getting treatment five days a week for uh, you know, a period of time each day, and that can go on for five to six weeks. And then uh, for earlier stage cancers where more precision is needed, uh, treatment courses are much shorter and much less arduous with pa many patients getting by with only three treatments of 15 minutes each. And in some cases, even only a single treatment of 15 minutes. Um, and those treatments are usually for patients who are felt to not be candidates for surgery uh, or who would prefer to uh, avoid surgery. I say that because generally we think that surgery provides better long-term survival for an early stage lung cancer than, for, than radiation does. Uh, and there are a number of reasons that we think that. Sadly, we can only think and we can't know because it's very difficult to complete clinical trials comparing radiation with surgery because nobody wants to sign up for a, a trial where a computer chooses for them whether they have radiation or surgery. And so we're, we're stuck making hypotheses. But even if you go to see most radiation oncologists, they'll tell you that you should probably consider a surgery first if you have an early stage lung cancer. And what about chemotherapy? Is that typical for people with lung cancer to need chemotherapy as part of the treatment? It's certainly common. Uh, all treatments, uh, treatment options are based on the stage of the lung cancer. And so any patient who has stage two or greater lung cancer, so stage two, three, or four, uh, will be recommended under, undergo some form of, of medical therapy for their cancer. Uh, you'll hear things like chemotherapy is a word that's commonly used. We also talk about things like immunotherapy or molecular treatments, uh, which are also still drugs and so still technically chemicals, but they don't fall into the conventional quote-unquote chemotherapy uh, that we hear people talk about. Well, at this point, which patients have genetic tests done on their tumors to see if a targeted therapy might be helpful? So just about everybody uh, is the answer. The question is whether or not that information will be useful or not. Um, uh, happily, most patients who are undergoing surgery are not going to need any sort of uh, drug or systemic therapy uh, afterwards. And so that information turns out not to be helpful. Um, but we always want to be prepared because some of those tests take longer to get the results. And so by the, if somebody does turn out to have a more advanced stage of lung cancer, we want to be prepared to know what their treatment options are. And so the sooner we test their samples, the better. Now, you mentioned immunotherapy. Um, how would that potentially be used? Who might that be helpful for? So that's uh, currently used for patients with stage three and stage four lung cancers in certain situations. Uh, there are more and more of those situations every day to the point now where most patients in stage three and four are gonna see some form of immunotherapy. And genetic testing is used to determine which agents are most appropriate for any given patient. Upstate's HealthLink on Air will be back with more about lung cancer with Dr. Jason Wallen after this short break. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Jason Wallen, who is the Chief of Thoracic Surgery at Upstate University Hospital and Medical Director of the Lung Cancer and Thoracic Oncology Program at the Upstate Cancer Center. He's providing us with an overview of lung cancer. So let's talk about how curable lung cancer is if you catch it at an early stage. 
what are the survival rates like for lung cancers that are caught in stage one? They're actually quite good. Uh, stage one lung cancer is a complicated stage because there are actually four substages for stage one. Um, and they range from uh, survival in the 80% up into the 90s percent. And then stage two, three, and four, not as uh, good an outlook? No, not good. The higher the stage, uh, the worse the survival gets. Uh, again, there, you know, the stages in lung cancer are complicated, and so there are substages, but stage two lung cancers usually are somewhere in the 60% range, uh, dropping into the 30s to 40s or even less for stage three um, and, and lesser still for stage four. So we definitely want to be catching these lung cancers early. If uh, if a if a tumor is removed successfully, how likely is it that cancer is going to recur in another lobe or the other lung after successful treatment? So uh, recurrence, uh, to use that word, uh, is really dependent on on the stage. And so uh, one of the things I like to tell my patients is that is that cancer never recurs. Uh, it either either they get a new cancer or the old cancer was never gone. And uh, and the chance, the reason that they quote unquote recur, that they re reappear, is because they were there at the time the operation was completed. We just weren't able to detect it, uh, and there of course limits to our technology uh, to be able to stage or detect cancer in other areas of the body. And so, what staging really does is it predicts what is the chance that there's cancer somewhere else that we haven't detected yet. And so, for example, a state a patient with stage two lung cancer, usually we take that patient to surgery because we think there's a good chance we can remove everything. But there's also, we know, a very good chance that there's something else out there that we haven't seen yet because it's microscopic and it's just too small to be seen on any of our scans. And that's the logic, if you will, for why things like chemotherapy are helpful in those patients is because it can clean up that microscopic disease that may be elsewhere in the body. And so, uh, to answer your question more specifically, the, the higher the clinical stage or the stage that we determined at the outset of treatment is, the more likely the cancer is to show up somewhere else at some later time. So, recurrence is really the wrong word to use. We all use it, um, but it's not technically what's happening. Do you ever have patients with lung cancer who don't want to stop smoking and if so, does that change their prognosis? Almost all of them. Really? Very few people want to stop smoking. It's, uh, it, you know, it's, it's uh, tobacco is the most addictive substance on the planet. And so uh, people are certainly motivated to stop smoking because they want to be healthier. Um, and uh, they're certainly afraid uh, of their diagnosis of lung cancer. And probably most of them have been motivated to smoke, to stop smoking for a, a long time, but it's just so difficult. But there are also patients who just blatantly don't want to. They're happy with smoking. They like smoking. They enjoy smoking. They don't want to change. So that definitely happens. So if someone undergoes treatment and they quit smoking, um, that improves their prognosis, right? It doesn't as much improve the prognosis for the cancer we're treating, but it decreases the chance that they're going to get a new lung cancer in the future. And it also decreases the chance that they're going to die from other problems. We always think about lung cancer when we think about smoking, but smoking causes a lot of different cancers. And so patients who don't want to get cancer should definitely consider stopping smoking. But lung cancer is a little bit unique in that even when you undergo uh, surgery or other forms of treatment for lung cancer, it's not like we removed all of your lung. You still have a lot of lung left. And so you can still get new cancers. And 
so when we're seeing patients after treatment for lung cancer, that's one of the things we're watching for most carefully is for new cancers to pop up that we may treat uh, or detect at an early stage. And we've talked mostly about primary lung cancer where the cancer begins in the lungs. I wonder if treatment options are different for someone whose cancer has spread to the lungs from elsewhere. Do they ever come to you and is surgery ever an option for that patient? So you're right, treatment is very different for those patients. When a cancer spreads to the lung, we no longer call it a lung cancer. Uh, it still retains the name of its original cancer. For example, if a colon cancer spreads to the lung, it doesn't become lung cancer. It's still a colon cancer just now in the lungs. And the way that those cancers are treated really depends on what the original cancer was or the original location of the cancer. And yes, some of those patients do end up needing surgery to remove those areas of uh, where cancer has spread to the lungs. It's not as common, uh, and there are often a lot of other treatments that are necessary, but it really has to be taken as an, on an individual basis and is heavily dependent on what type of cancer they started off with. Well, I'd like to ask you a little bit more about causes because we've heard about smoking causing lung cancer. Can you describe exactly how that happens and whether it's different if you're smoking or vaping as opposed to smoking a cigarette? So cancer in general comes because of cellular damage. So anything that you do that repeatedly damages cells in a given part of your body uh, means that your cells are going to have to repair themselves or grow new cells. And the more cell division or cell repair that is going on, the greater the chance for an error. And those errors are what lead to cancers. And smoking does a lot of damage to the lungs and the lungs uh, definitely try to repair themselves or heal. And uh, when that's happening multiple times a day, every single day, day in and day out for many years, the chances start to become quite significant that a mistake will be made and that uh, one cell will become cancerous. And, and then you develop a full-blown lung cancer. And so anything that causes cell damage, truly in any part of the body, it's not just for lung cancer, uh, can lead to a cancer at some point uh, in time. Do you have any idea how many lung cancer cases are attributable to secondhand smoke? That's much harder to determine. There's actually not a lot of people have, who have significant secondhand smoke exposure who weren't smokers themselves. Um, and it's also very difficult to measure what somebody's secondhand smoke exposure was. Uh, it's not so convenient like a, like a single cigarette that we can count that somebody has say, well, I've smoked, you know, 10 cigarettes a day or 20 cigarettes a day or a pack a day. Uh, when you're exposed to secondhand smoke exposure, smoke, uh, it's often from, could be from one person, from multiple people. We don't know exactly how much those people were smoking, uh, how close you were to them. Uh, and, and so it just becomes very difficult to quantify that exposure. How often do you see people with lung cancer who never smoked and were never around smokers? That's unusual, but it does happen. It's certainly a minority of patients. Uh, let me ask you about risk factors besides smoking. Are there other risk factors that would put someone at risk for lung cancer? There are, but they're much less common. Uh, the ones we typically think of are radiation exposure to the chest. So perhaps somebody who was treated with radiation for another cancer or who had radiation exposure through an occupational exposure, that could be possible. Uh, one that we commonly talk about in upstate New York is radon exposure. Um, and people who buy uh, homes often have to go through radon testing and that's uh, to make sure that they're not excessive levels coming out of their basement because that can cause cancer. 
Uh, we also deal with a significant veteran population who served uh, the armed, in the armed forces in Vietnam. And uh, a lot of those patients were exposed to Agent Orange, which uh, is a significant risk factor for lung cancer. And, uh, and, and many of those patients are now currently in their 60s and 70s, which are the ages where they develop lung cancer. So we see a great deal of that as well. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Upstate's Chief of Thoracic Surgery and the Medical Director of the Lung Cancer and Thoracic Oncology Program, Dr. Jason Wallen. In terms of advice for someone who's in treatment for lung cancer, what do you tell your patients? Are, are people generally able to go on about their regular life? Depends a little bit on what types of treatment that they're getting. Uh, for patients who are undergoing surgical therapy, uh, then you know their life definitely gets interrupted for at least a short period of time. Uh, you know there certainly are interruptions related to the initial workup. You, we talked about several tests that patients have to undergo, getting uh, determining the stage of their lung cancer, whether or not they have cancer, and whether or not they're fit for surgery. Um, and so those things can make, you know, getting through a day of work difficult or uh, can make it difficult to attend to other responsibilities that people have. Um, obviously, when you go through surgery, uh, if you're required uh, to be in the hospital, which is most surgical patients, uh, then uh, that can be difficult to get through. But happily, hospital stays are typically short uh, on the order of two to three days. <clears throat> but then there's a period of time of recovery after surgeries as well, uh, where patients are home and up and walking around, but usually not driving for a couple of weeks and not able to do a lot of heavy lifting. Um, and uh, it's usually best for those people to have somebody around with them, at least for the first few days after an operation. And so for people who live alone, that can be challenging. Uh, patients who are going through more advanced treatments, such as chemotherapy and radiation, particularly if they're happening at the same time, uh, can have more difficulties with fatigue. And so that can be difficult to drive themselves to treatment. Uh, patients often take, you know, a nap or two during the day that maybe they didn't before, go to bed or a little earlier at night. Um, sometimes they have less energy because they don't feel as much like eating um, and the treatments themselves can cause fatigue. Um, and so uh, the vast majority of people are able to do most things, but most people notice some negative impact on their life. Um, you know, it's not uh, the flip side, but people are not usually spending their whole time in the hospital. Uh, people are not, you know, miserable and throwing up and having a terrible time. You know, we've, we've heard lots of horror stories uh, about patient, patients going through things like chemotherapy and radiation for lung cancer, but it's important to know that those things are the exception rather than the rule. The vast majority of patients get through treatment being a little bit tired, uh, you know, like I said, having a little less energy, and certainly they have a few days where they, they feel more crummy than others, um, but the vast majority of patients are home and going about most of their activities of daily living. If someone had part of their lung removed or all of their, one of their lungs removed, will they necessarily have shortness of breath during recovery? I always tell patients that how much you notice what we remove really depends on how much you use what you've got. Um, and for example, somebody who has really good lungs, who doesn't do a lot of physical activity is less likely to notice uh, shortness of breath after removing some portion of their lungs. Somebody who has less lung capacity, but who is more active is going to notice uh, the loss to their breathing significantly more. And those things are difficult to measure. Uh, usually we're able to tell uh, if somebody is going to have trouble 
doing what we call their activities of daily living. And that's what we really try to safeguard as much as possible. We want people to be able to go about their normal business without becoming shorter breath. So we don't want people to get shorter breath at rest. Uh, we want people to be able to walk around their house without becoming shorter breath, to get to the mailbox without becoming shorter breath, um, to get dressed without becoming shorter breath. Um, but we're a lot less able to to tell somebody who runs a mile a day and it takes them 10 minutes if it's going to take them 11 minutes or 12 minutes or if they're still going to be able to do 10 minutes after their operation and that may sound funny but there are plenty of people who are undergoing lung cancer treatment who are very uh, physically active and do a lot of uh, strenuous exercise and so that does become a priority are there alternative medicine treatments that have helped any of your patients or anything that you advise in terms of diet, things to eat or things not to eat that could be helpful during recovery? Well, we do have an integrative medicine program uh, through the Cancer Center at Upstate, which uh, seeks to advise patients on, uh, on, on mostly healthy lifestyle. As you pointed out, diet plays a very important role. Uh, So-called cancer-fighting foods, how to maximize nutrition, uh, focusing on things like meditation and exercise to improve uh, people's health overall. Um, and we, we think that it plays a very important role in, in cancer treatment and patients who are receiving cancer treatment uh, through the cancer center should definitely ask about that. Um, uh, in terms of alternative therapy, uh, there's no such thing as alternative medicine. There's medicine that works and there's medicine that does not work. If medicine works, it ceases to be the alternative and becomes what we do. And so uh, we really wanna focus on treatments that have some evidence showing their efficacy. So we can be confident that if we recommend a treatment to a patient that we know it's gonna work better or chances are it's gonna work better for them than some other treatment. And the problem with a lot of these so-called alternative therapies is they haven't been tested. And so, and they haven't been compared to one another nor have they been compared to what we normally do. And so in terms of recommending things to people, how are we to choose uh, if we don't know how much more effective treatment A is versus treatment B, what the side effects of treatment A are versus treatment B, uh, it becomes very challenging. Um, so it's very important that when patients are undergoing treatments or choosing treatments, that they know what the evidence for their efficacy is, uh, particularly like a lot of these, these treatments, they have to pay cash for them. You really wanna know what you're getting. Well, you and I talked about lung cancer screening recently in, in 2019 when Upstate's Thoracic Oncology Program celebrated its 20th year of service. You did such a thorough job of walking us through everything about how and why lung cancer screening is done. But there's the one new thing, a possible change in who's going to be recommended for screening. So can you tell us again who is likely going to qualify for screening? Sure. So as we talked before, uh, one of the important risk factors for lung cancer is how much somebody smoked. And so we have to have a way to measure that. And uh, the way we measure that is we, we, look, we ask a patient how many packs of cigarettes they typically smoked a day over their lifetime. Uh, the most common number in my experience is one pack of cigarettes per day. So we'll use that for an example. And then we ask them for how many years did they smoke? And obviously, how many years they smoked uh, can vary. Some patients didn't smoke contiguously over their entire life. Some people, you know, started and stopped uh, at various points in their life. But we try to come up with a number for how many years they actually smoked. 
and we multiply the two. So if somebody smoked a pack of cigarettes a day for 30 years, that's a 30 pack year history of smoking. And that was the, the floor for lung cancer screening before. So if somebody had a 25 pack year history of smoking, they didn't qualify for lung cancer screening. That has changed. Now uh, it is tw down to 20 pack years. So if somebody smoked a pack a day for 20 years or two packs a day for 10 years, that both, both those would get you to 20 pack years. And, and based on that, the patient would qualify for lung cancer screening. Uh, the other uh, thing that has changed in the recommendations is the age range. So we used to say that patients uh, between the ages of 55 and 80 qualified for lung cancer screening. That has now come down to age 50. So ages 50 to 80 qualified for lung cancer screening. And then the final uh, criteria is if the patient has quit smoking, uh, how long ago did they quit? And that has not changed. So uh, anybody who has a significant smoking history, as we just talked about, who has quit less than 15 years ago, qualifies for lung cancer screening. This has been a very informative overview. Thank you to Dr. Jason Wallen. He's an associate professor of surgery, chief of thoracic surgery at Upstate University Hospital, and the medical director of the lung cancer and thoracic oncology program at the Upstate Cancer Center. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and radio talk show, HealthLink on Air.